Mark chapter 10. We'll start in verse 1 here in just a moment. I was talking to an old husband one time, and he told me this. My wife and I have never considered divorce. Murder, yes, but never divorce. (laughs) Marriage is wonderful, and it is tricky all at the same time. The statistics on divorce are too sad to even talk about. Uh, There is a popular statistic that's floated around unsighted for many years. The statistic is this, that the divorce rate in the church is equal to or even higher than the divorce rate outside the church, to which I say, that's a bunch of hot garbage. Here's three reasons why that's a mess. Number one, uh, 72% of all statistics are made up. I know that because I just made that up. (laughs) Number two, there is quality, trustworthy research that has been done that shows us that a walk with Christ actually makes a significant impact in marital longevity. For those who truly walk with Christ, the divorce rate is dropped by 35%. Uh, It makes a big difference. And then third of all, here's a reality that I just know from God's Word. Jesus Christ makes a difference in a marriage. There's no way the presence of Christ in a marriage is a negligible thing. Jesus Christ changes things for husbands and wives. Uh, We are in a block of material in the Gospel of Mark where Jesus begins to talk about what discipleship looks like applied to some different areas of our lives. And the passage we study this morning has to do with divorce and marriage. As a follower of Jesus Christ, your discipleship has profound implications on this most important relationship, on your marriage. Jesus Christ is Lord of our lives, not just of our eternities, but in the here and now, He dictates to us what it means to walk in faithfulness as husband and wife in a relationship with Him. And so there are profound implications for the follower of Jesus as it relates to our marriages. And that's where Jesus takes us this morning. He speaks directly about marriage, and the end goal in all of this is hope. My goal this morning in the passage we're going to study is to infuse unbreakable hope into your marriage. Now, there's a lot of disclaimers that ought to be given before this sermon. Here's one. Uh, There's more to be said about marriage and divorce than is going to be said in this one sermon today. So it may prompt a discussion that comes after this. I want to encourage you to call me, email me. I'm easy to get a hold of. And I'll be happy to sit down and talk together about your situation, your history, what you've been through, and uh, look for guidance and encouragement from God's Word. So if there seems to be a gap or you've got some question that's lingering, or you just think, did Cody mean this or did he? Please don't leave that unaddressed. I want you to get in touch with me this week and let's talk. Here's another disclaimer. Um, Many men and women I've known who have been through divorce carry with them a tremendous amount of guilt. Regardless of the situation, regardless of the circumstances that led to it, there's still a lot of guilt that comes on the other side of it. And to be fair, I think preachers have not always been the most gracious or merciful or hope-filled when it comes to discussing this topic. They come in and swing a hammer and just tell you what you ought to do because you ought to do it, and that's it. But I want to remind you, our goal this morning is 
hope. That's not a goal that I've manufactured. This is the goal Jesus gives us in the passage we're going to study today. So please do not let guilt or squirminess get in the way of hearing the hope, the mercy, the love that comes from Jesus Christ today. One more disclaimer. If you're single, single, never married, this is absolutely for you today. If you're a single, previously married, this is absolutely for you today. This is not just married couple Sunday or married happy couple Sunday. This is human being Sunday as we dive into the implications of the teachings of Jesus on divorce and marriage. So how we're going to approach this passage today is we're going to ask two really simple questions, one about divorce, one about marriage, and Jesus has a lot to say on both. So I want you to follow along with me as I read Mark chapter 10, starting in verse 1. Jesus then left that place and went into the region of Judea and across the Jordan. Again, crowds of people came to him, and as was his custom, he taught them. Some Pharisees came and tested him by asking, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? What did Moses command you? He replied. They said, Moses permitted a man to write a certificate of divorce and send her away. It was because your hearts were hard that Moses wrote you this law, Jesus replied. But at the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one. Therefore, what God has joined together, let man not separate. When they were in the house again, the disciples asked Jesus about this. He answered, anyone who divorces his wife and marries another woman commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another man, she commits adultery. So we're going to approach this passage today asking two simple questions about it. One about divorce, one question about marriage. If you're taking notes, our first question today is this. Why do people divorce? It's important that we know an answer to this seemingly very simple question. Why is it that people divorce? Our passage opens and and Mark uh, gives us important geographical markers just to kind of pull back the scope a bit so you can see where we're heading. Jesus has left Capernaum which is his home base on the north shore of the Sea of Galilee. And he is headed south towards Jerusalem. So even here in Mark 10, Jesus has his eyes on the cross. So as the reader, as the student of God's Word, we just know that as we study these words. And as Jesus is going along, familiar things happen. One, he's surrounded by crowds. We see that over and over again. Jesus is incredibly popular every place he goes because the crowds think of him primarily as a miracle worker. He's surrounded by crowds, hard for him to get by to do things. And then he is confronted by a group of Pharisees. The Pharisees come to Jesus in verse 2. We're told they come to test him. And they test him by asking him a question about divorce. In verse 2, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? Now in Matthew's telling of this story, Matthew includes an extra phrase on that question. Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any reason? Now the Pharisees do not ask Jesus this question because they're interested in his information. As if this is a question they're sincerely looking for an answer for. 
They ask this question to test him. They want to nail Jesus. Remember that all the way back to chapter 3, we're told that this group of religious leaders are looking for a way to kill Jesus. So although Mark doesn't articulate it for us specifically, I think these guys show up with some pre-planned outrage to whatever answer Jesus gives. But here's what they don't know. Jesus knows a little bit of verbal kung fu. And he, they ask a question. He responds with a different question altogether. So their question is, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? Verse 3, Jesus responds, what did Moses command you? So here's the deal. What Jesus knows, and he's testing the Pharisees now on, is that Moses didn't command anything regarding divorce. The Pharisees pick up on this. They sort of kind of pass the test. In verse 4, they reply to Jesus. They said, Moses permitted. Not Moses commanded. Moses permitted a man to write a certificate of divorce and send her away. They're referencing a verse from Deuteronomy chapter 24. I want you to see it with your own eyes on the screen here. Deuteronomy 24 verse 1. If a man marries a woman, but she becomes displeasing to him because he finds something improper, your NIV says something indecent about her, he may write her a divorce certificate, hand it to her, and send her away from his house. Now the key phrase in this verse is the phrase something improper or something indecent. The question that arose in ancient Judaism was, what does that mean? It's kind of vague. And so two schools of thought emerge in terms of how to interpret this verse. Specifically that line, something improper. One school was very conservative. It said something improper means adultery. Some sort of violent breaking of the marriage covenant. That's the only reason divorce would be permitted. And then here's the, the way it happens. The other school of thought, which was wildly popular in Jesus' day, was far more liberal. It taught that something improper or something indecent meant anything the husband did not like about his wife. And there's this large body of work from ancient rabbis who explain what something improper means. They give specifics. Let me show you a few of the reasons why if you were... Uh, a first century Jewish man, you could divorce your wife. If she's barren, if she becomes deaf, if she's epileptic, if she has leprosy, if she has warts, if she has a head that is wedge-shaped or turnip-shaped or hammer-shaped or a head that is sunk in or flat in the back, if she has poor posture or thinning hair or no eyebrows or one eyebrow or bushy eyebrows, or eyes that are too high, or eyes that are too low, if she's cross-eyed, or has no eyelashes, or eyes of two colors. But that's not all, there's more. If she has watery eyes, or eyes as big as a calf, or eyes small like a goose, or a nose too big or too little, or ears too small or floppy. If she has an overbite, or an underbite, or she has missing teeth, or a swollen belly, or a protruding navel, or a dark complexion, or bony ankles, or swollen feet. If she's ambidextrous, if she ate something forbidden, or if she visited her parents' home. But that's not all. There's more. If her parents move to her city to be close to their daughter, if she breaks the law of Moses or Jewish customs regarding propriety and dress, if she burns supper, or if the husband found someone he thought was prettier. A lot of those are laugh-worthy. 
I don't know what a hammer-shaped head looks like. She's a land shark. I'm not sure what's happening here. So there's plenty there to giggle at. Here's a couple of sad conclusions. One is that these people are justifying wanton, flippant, no-fault divorce with a religious argument. Oh, if our paperwork's in order, then we fall in line with what Moses permits us to do. Here's another sad conclusion. All of this is for the sake of the husband. There is no protection for the woman in this practice. Not a bit. The woman does not have the same power, the same right as the man to protect herself in a marriage. Especially not in this situation that Jesus and the Pharisees are discussing. So the Pharisees have effectively tried to throw Moses under the bus. Well, Moses said as long as the paperwork's in order, we can do whatever we want here. But Jesus corrects them. Verse 5. It was because your hearts were hard that Moses wrote you this law. So in other words, divorce was God's concession for sinful people. It was not His desire. God's desire is lifelong, happy marriage. I think it's important you nail that phrase. Lifelong, happy marriage. Marriage, not just a lifelong marriage. Lifelong without happiness is a prison sentence. God wants you to enjoy your marriage. Lifelong, happy marriage. That's God's design. His concession is divorce. So why do people get divorced? That's the question we're asking to start with this morning. Here's our answer from Jesus. Very simply, people get divorced only and always because of sin. People get divorced only and always because of sin. Here's what Jesus teaches us. That every divorce involves at least one person who has first broken their relationship with God prior to breaking the relationship with their spouse. I need you to listen closely here. I don't want you to hear what I'm not saying. I'm not saying that every divorcee has a broken relationship with God. I'm not at all saying that. I'm saying that every divorce involves at least one person who is not walking with Jesus. And so perhaps you are a Christian woman who divorced your husband because he created an environment that was unbiblical, horrible, awful. You walk with Jesus. It's his sin that's led to the breakup of the marriage. Okay? So if this is true, that divorce is always the result of sin, the flip side of this is also true, that two people walking faithfully with Jesus will never divorce. You can challenge me on that all day, and I'm going to stand firm on this statement. Two people walking faithfully with Jesus Christ will never, never divorce. Now here's, immediately you begin to have names and people come to mind, maybe your own story, and you think, well, we're Christian people. I'm not asking, are you Christian? I'm saying two people walking faithfully with Jesus Christ, living, thinking, relating to each other through the lens of their relationship with Christ. Those people will never divorce. Now they might fight, and they may disagree, but they are committed to the words and actions of Christ towards each other. So they are peacemakers. They are pure in heart. They are merciful to one another. They hunger and thirst for righteousness in their marriage. They forgive each other much. 
They acknowledge their need for Jesus in light of their own spiritual poverty. Marriages are lifelong and happy when both people are Christ lovers and Christ-like. The Pharisees have asked, when can we divorce? And Jesus has answered, why would you indulge your sin? God has something so much better for you than this. Why do people divorce? We divorce because of sin. Lifelong happy marriages are for people who walk in faithfulness with Jesus Christ, husband and wife together. What's the second question we want to ask of this text today? Jesus first answers, why do people get divorced? It's sin. The second question is this, why should we stay married? Why should people remain in their marriages? If, if we bring all kinds of mess to the relationship. We're selfish. We're liars. We fight to win. We call names. We want our way. We don't want their way. We bring all kinds of struggles to the marriage relationship. So if it's so hard, why should we stay married? And isn't it just like Jesus to take this conversation that the Pharisees had pre-planned, he just turns it on its head and takes it in the direction he wants to take it. They're looking for a reason to trap him, and Jesus instead applies conviction and also hope to this understanding of what it is to be his follower and to be married. They've asked, can we practice divorce? Jesus answers, here's why you should stay married. In rapid-fire fashion, Jesus gives five very clear, very profound reasons why we should stay married. Even when it's hard, things are really challenging, here's why we should stay married. Let me give you five quick reasons from Jesus. First of all, we stay married because marriage is God's design. In verse 6, Jesus begins his answer this way. He says, at the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. So there is this divine design in marriage. It's not the invention of man. It's the creation of God and God alone. We didn't just fall into marriage by some fate of evolution. God designed it. He created us, male and female, and designed us for this purpose. His design from the beginning was for male and female, lifelong, monogamous, happy marriage. That's His design from the very start. It's incredible to think of all that God has created he created galaxies, and He created the rings of Saturn, and He created the Grand Canyon, and He created giraffes, and He created um, uh, what thunderstorms and lightning, and He creates atoms and the human eye and gravity and light, and God creates marriage. God made this. It's, it's a reflection of His grace. It's a common grace and a special grace to us that we have the opportunity to know this blessing. Now, marriage sometimes gets a bad rap as an institution. There's a whole litany of really unfunny jokes about the hardship of marriage. Marriage is not hard because of marriage. Marriage is hard because we're messed up. <laughs> because we bring sin into this thing. That's what makes it challenging. And followers of Jesus recognize that. We recognize that it's our sin that makes our relationships a challenge. But we also recognize the limitless potential of Christ-honoring marriage. There are blessings, abundant blessings for those who walk with Jesus in marriage together. So we remain in our marriages motivated by the blessings of God's design. God made this thing. It is good. We should fight for it. Here's a second reason to stay married. 
because marriage is greater than all other relationships. It's greater than every other relationship. Look at what Jesus says in verse 7. He says, For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife. Some of you moms and dads may have scratched that out of your Bible, so that's why it's important for me to read it so that you can hear what Jesus says. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife. When you enter into a marriage covenant, you have set one relationship above every other. Parent and child are not one flesh. Husband and wife. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife. Now, at my wedding, there was a share time. People got up and shared stories and encouragement. And um, my grandmother stood up. And she quoted this verse. She said, the Bible says, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother. But it doesn't say anything about leaving his grandmother. (laughs) So so you just take that and tuck it away. You may need it one day. It's been a hard split, I'm not going to (laughs) lie. But why should you stay married? Because when you have a spouse, this is the most important relationship. It is worth every effort to forgive, to seek healing, to be patient, to endure a long time with each other. It's the most important relationship God has given you. Here's a third reason to stay married from Jesus. Marriage is a supernatural union. It's a supernatural union. In verse 8, Jesus says the two will become one flesh so they are no longer two but one. Now, look, it's, it's true that we will have deep and meaningful relationships outside of marriage. That's a true thing. And especially as a single adult, this is not to say you don't, you don't have fulfillment in relationships or you're going to live your whole life wanting or feeling like there's, there's something missing in your life. That's not it at all. Um, singleness is a blessing. It is a sacred calling from God. And there's much that Scripture says about what it is to live life as a single adult in complete joy and satisfaction before the Lord. But in this instance, when Jesus describes marriage, he describes a union that is like nothing else. The two will become one flesh, so they are no longer two but one. It's only in marriage that this type of supernatural union takes place. So many marriage ceremonies illustrate this mysterious union union in a variety of ways. You've been at wedding ceremonies before where the couple may do a unity candle or they do the sand thing. They pour sand together. Uh, Or or I've been a part of ceremonies where they do a unity cross or I did one ceremony where the couple did this uh, hand-binding ritual thing. We, We put all this imagery into a wedding ceremony to describe this mysterious union that God alone does. He takes one man, one woman, and makes one flesh out of them. And that's a, that's a bond that is violent to break. When the marriage breaks up, it's not like two Lego bricks just popping apart. It is like flesh ripping from flesh because this is what God has created. He's given this relationship, this beautiful relationship, connected husband and wife in this supernatural way so they are one person. It is unnatural to take that apart. Here's another reason to stay married. Jesus goes on to say, 
that God is the Lord over our marriages. He is the Lord. He's the boss. He calls the shots. He's the sovereign. In verse 9, Jesus says, Therefore, what God has joined together, let man not separate. So if God has brought these two together, if He's done this work, God has done it, then these two people who are now one flesh are under God's rule regarding their marriage. They are not the sovereign ones who get to rip apart the, the marriage whenever it gets hard. They are the submitted ones under God's leadership. So let me describe what happens in a marriage ceremony. This is the same spiel you're going to get from me if I'm going to do your wedding or your kid's wedding or something like that. Here's what happens in that ceremony. We are forming a covenant with our words. There's a lot of important things that go on on wedding day. Flowers, punch bowl, guest books, gift table. But the most important thing are the words that are spoken to each other on that day. Covenants are an ancient, ancient type of treaty. So it's, it's government language, really. And so the way ancient covenants worked was this. You would have at least two parties, and there's always a greater party and a lesser party in the covenant. And the greater party dictates the conditions of the covenant for the sake of the lesser party. So the greater party says this. Here's how this covenant relationship works. You meet these conditions. You do this, 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 and this. And then we will bless you in this way. We'll give you, what do countries want? Protection. Uh, we'll give you peace. We won't annihilate you. We'll let you exist on planet Earth. You meet these conditions, here's the blessings, the good things that happen. If you break these conditions, then here's the sure wrath that's going to come your way. That's how countries handled covenants in antiquity. And so in a marriage ceremony, a covenant is formed. Here's the question. Between bride and groom, who is the greater party? It is not the groom, and it is not the bride. It is God. We often think that in a marriage ceremony that here we have two people who are making really serious promises and I'm going to do my best and love is always a feeling and it'll never diminish and everyone else gets it wrong, but we're going to get it right all the way. And they're making these hard promises to each other. That's not at all what's happening, not in full anyways. What's happening is this Christian man and this Christian woman are saying, God, we're choosing each other and we're going to live in your will for our lives moving forward. God is the greater party. Husband and wife are the lesser party. God sets the conditions of the marriage relationship. You will love each other and no other for the duration of your lives. Till death do you part. This is where this is going. Sickness and health, better or worse, those words matter. They matter. They ring in eternity. When we form these covenants with God, He's the Lord over the marriage. It's not ours to get to decide when it breaks and why it breaks. What God has put together, no one should try to separate. And if God's the Lord over it, that's a good thing. This is not me saying stay married because God said so and He's watching and He's going to get you. That's not at all what it is because in God we find compassion and love and mercy and new life and joy. Everything we need for a lifelong happy marriage we find in our relationship with the Lord. Final reason you should stay married from Jesus is because marriage is for your holiness. 
You want to grow in holiness with the Lord? Marriage is where it can happen. So in verses 10 and 12, there's a change of scenery. Previously, Jesus has been in the public going toe-to-toe with these Pharisees. Now he takes his disciples aside. They get to a quiet place inside a house, and Jesus continues his teaching. And what Jesus has said up to this point is not status quo. No one else is saying the things Jesus is saying about what marriage is like or what divorce is like. And now when Jesus gets his disciples alone, he turns up the pressure even more in this moment. Look at what he says, starting in verse 10. When they were in the house again, the disciples asked Jesus about this, about his teaching on marriage and divorce. He answered, anyone who divorces his wife and marries another woman commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another man, she commits adultery. So verse 11, anyone who divorces his wife, marries another woman, commits adultery against whom? Who does he commit adultery against? Pay close attention to the verse. He commits adultery against her. In ancient Jewish thinking, adultery was not committed against your wife. It was committed against the husband of the other woman that you did husband-wife things with. Women were mere property. They, They don't have a voice. They don't have a standing or stature in this culture. But Jesus flips all of that upside down. He gives worth and dignity, and protection, and a voice, and stature to women that the religious institution is not doing. And he says to these husbands, if you you divorce her wantonly, she's got a turnip-shaped head, you send her packing, and then you remarry someone with a round head, you have committed adultery against your wife. The same holds true for women who who leave their husbands and remarry. Jesus is telling us it it doesn't matter if the paperwork is done correctly. God keeps account. The person who leaves their spouse unjustly for sinful reasons is not spiritually free to marry again. We underestimate the spiritual damage of divorce. Even in cases where divorce may be biblically warranted, there is still a significant blast radius. Everyone involved is damaged. No one is spared. And what's more, we underestimate the power of marriage to make us holy. Listen, it takes real, true spiritual formation and spiritual maturity to be able to communicate, to be able to forgive, to be able to resolve conflict, to be able to choose love when you don't feel love. These things take real spiritual maturity, and marriage makes us holy. So what then should you do if you realize, hey, I divorced for unbiblical reasons. I've remarried Cody. This is really uncomfortable now. What are you saying about my current marriage? Listen, uh, the teaching from Jesus is not end this marriage and go back to the previous one. Because remember this, divorce and adultery are not the unforgivable sins. They too are covered by the blood of Jesus Christ. And he makes whole people, saved people, eternal people, out of people who have made a violent mess of their lives following their own flesh and their own selfishness. That's the true testimony of everyone 
who knows the salvation that Jesus Christ has to give. And so this is not a time for you to begin to beat yourself up and to feel like you've blown it and you've, you've lost everything. This is a moment for you to turn to Jesus Christ if you have not already, to turn to Him for your salvation, to turn to Him for your forgiveness, for new life in Him again perhaps, and for you to invest your heart and soul into the marriage God has given you this day. To love your husband and to love your wife with all that you have as you follow Jesus Christ. So we've covered a lot of ground this morning. Really sensitive, I get it. Really delicate, really complicated. Worth of, worthy of more conversation after this, I'm sure of it. Real quickly, let's, let's look at where we've been. Why, why is it that people get divorced? We get divorced because we're messed up. We get divorced because we sin. And More than anything, I want you to remember that just as sin is the culprit for divorce, a walk with Christ is the way we go towards a lifelong happy marriage. People who walk with Jesus do not divorce. And why should you fight for your marriage? Because God designed it. It's the greatest relationship. You're supernaturally united to your spouse. God is sovereign over it, and He is making you holy in that relationship. So Christian marriage is unique because it's defined by the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Christian marriage isn't just a unique tool set. I mean, there are tools to be applied and used for sure. But first and foremost, it is Christ's death and resurrection that teaches husbands how to love wives and wives how to love husbands. At the cross, Jesus shows the way we are to love each other sacrificially, laying down our lives for the sake of the other. At his resurrection, we realize the life-giving power that gives hope to every marriage. And so you need to hear and you need to believe Jesus today. He has shown us that there is more hope than we realize for struggling marriages. He's shown us that there's more joy than we realize in a happy marriage And that there is mercy and forgiveness for every broken person that comes to Him. You are not damaged goods. You are not second rate. You have not blown it. Today, the choice is yours. The opportunity is there for you to turn to Jesus Christ anew. A healthy marriage begins with the right relationship with Christ. We've talked this morning about the why of marriage. Here's motivations for fighting for your marriage. Here's a little bit of a how. How? We walk with Jesus Christ. If you don't know Christ as your Savior, you're not a follower of His, you've not trusted Him for your Savior, this is where your happy marriage, lifelong marriage, future marriage begins, is in your relationship with Jesus Christ. Friend, you need to come to Jesus Christ for the sake of Christ alone this morning. Here's what I mean. Coming to Jesus means this. You're not going to rely on your good works or your lack of bad works for God to grant you entrance into heaven one day. What you rely on is the fact that Jesus Christ, who is sinless God in the flesh, died in your place for your sin. Your sin is what has separated you from God. He died in your place to take the punishment that your sin deserves because He loves you this much. And then three days after he died, he rose from the dead, really physically, up and walked out of that grave. And that's why every promise in him is true. And that's why this path of salvation is exclusive through him. You've got to come to Jesus for your salvation today. And you have to do that for the sake of Christ, not for the sake of your marriage. Here's what I see happen all too often. Weepy husbands 
with a threat of divorce over their heads, come back to church in order to get their wife back. And that works for a few months. But guess what? It almost always fails. Because that man hasn't come to Christ for Christ. He's come to Christ for his wife. His love is not Jesus Christ. His love is his wife. That marriage will never work. Brother, sister, you've got to come to Jesus for the sake of Jesus. No matter what happens with anything else, you've got to come to him because he is worthy and he is beautiful and he is your Savior and you love him. And out of the overflow of that relationship, then you know how to love your spouse, how to forgive, how to apologize, how to talk, how to live together. You know all those things through a true relationship with Christ. We can't use him for trinkets. He alone is the goal in every marriage, in every life. So you've got to come to Jesus Christ. And you may need to fight for your marriage in other ways. It could be that you find yourself in an ongoing pattern of hardship and difficulty. Let me encourage you to reach out to a third party. I am a huge proponent of counseling as an effective strategy to help us sort out our relationship challenges. You may need to fight for your marriage by practicing your faith together, praying together, reading the Word together, serving together, worshiping together. You've got to turn to Jesus. And as you walk with Him hand in hand, husband and wife, you walk towards a lifelong happy marriage. And when you walk with Jesus, you're going to be amazed at the difference it makes in your marriage. You're going to experience joy and satisfaction like never before. And then one day in the future, Christ will return. And He'll destroy Satan once and for all. And then you will see what the Apostle John saw in Revelation chapter 21, verse 2. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And in that moment you will realize how your life with your bride or with your groom has prepared you for eternal joy with your king. Let's pray together. Lord God, you know how my heart's been heavy coming into this morning um, because of how sensitive an an issue this is. There's There's no hiding from it. I'm grateful for every soul you brought here today whom I believe needed to hear what Jesus has to say on this matter. I'm grateful for the couples in here who can receive this with joy because they've learned these lessons and they've applied them to their souls. Grateful for the examples we have of men and women who have lived in, continue to live in a lifelong happy marriage. Thank you for the examples of men and women who have taken till death do us part seriously, who have shown the long faithfulness of in sickness and in health for better or for worse. Thank you that in them we see reflections of your love and in them we see the hope of what's possible for every marriage. So I pray this morning for husbands and wives who are struggling. And God, I pray that you would set their eyes firmly on you for the long fix, not some quick little temporary stuff, but for the long fix that that they would come to you. Lord, bring salvation. 
to these women who don't know you as their Savior. Awaken faith in these men who don't know you as their Savior. Lord, let husband and wife know the power of your death and resurrection for their sake so they can understand how to live in this beautiful thing you've created for them. For my friends in here who are your children who have spouses that are not, Lord, let the encouragement from 1 Peter 3 uh, be renewed today and hope to be renewed today as they live faithfully with their husband and wife, or wife uh, as they walk with you, setting an example that their spouse would see and be drawn to you from. Lord, for those who carry guilt, would you give peace? Would you give a new start? Would you give hope? Let them receive all that you have for them. And let it be said of us, South Shore Baptist Church, that that we are a people that love you so much and that's reflected in the way husbands and wives love each other. Thank you for this precious gift you've given us, the gift of marriage, the mysterious union of two becoming one. What an amazing thing we get to live in and experience. Lord, bring satisfaction to my single friends in here this morning as they walk in faithfulness with you and bring satisfaction and joy to my married friends in here as we live out of the overflow of our relationship with you. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.